Now then, this morning, we're going to be doing, we're doing a topic that I've never taught on extensively. And so, um, you know, if you have been reading your web news, you know, at all this week, if, and that's where I read my, I get most of my news from, it's like, you're seeing stuff like this in the web. You got me working? Uh, I'm on. There we go. You're seeing stuff like this. Fox News discusses possibility that Syria war fulfills biblical prophecy. Syria conflict indicates Armageddon. That's a big deal. And, you know, matter of fact, let me just back up and say, that first one's from Mother Jones. They are not a bastion of the evangelical press, if you know what I mean. The next one is Huffington Press, which I would say the same thing about, you know. This one here, here's the Daily Beast. Sorry, evangelicals, Syria will not spur on the second coming. They, they don't believe it, but they're talking about it. You know what I mean? Here, this one is from Time. Some evangelicals see biblical prophecy in Syrian crisis. Here's uh, USA Today. Some see biblical visions in doom of Syria trouble. Here we are from the International Business Times. Syria World War III prophecies. Does Isaiah 17 Armageddon vision foresee U.S. military strike? God has a way of sneaking into popular culture even when popular culture doesn't want him in there. And so here are all these different, and these are all just secular news sources that are talking about this. Now, matter of fact, even, um, can you, you got that video ready to play? Even here, check out this video. I'll tell you when to cut it off because I don't want to hear, I don't want the whole thing, all right? this to think about today. The crisis in Syria may be more than just a current foreign policy problem, with some seeing signs of biblical prophecies of the apocalypse and the events that are unfolding overseas. Passages in the Old Testament even make reference to Damascus falling into ruin, sparking worldwide conflict that some say leads to the coming of the Messiah. Joel Rosenberg is a former aide to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and he is a Middle East analyst and has written several books uh, on this issue. Joel, welcome. Good to have you with us today. Good to be with you, Martha. You know, I think it's very interesting uh, to look at this from that historic biblical perspective, because in many ways, when, obviously, um, you know, what you have here is, is a clash of civilizations in a larger sense and of Christianity uh, and of radical Islam uh, and this uh, desire for a caliphate on the part of radical Islamists in that part of the world. So explain to us, take us through um, Isaiah and what, you, what your thinking right. is on, on what the Bible says about this. Well, Martha, it is fascinating. We don't know for certain that the current events are definitely going to play out to be the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. But the implosion of Syria is, definitely has people interested. Isaiah 17 and so its parallel... So you see um, Fox News, and granted it is Fox News, more conservative, they'll play stuff like that, whereas the others won't. And they'll even take the, the things serious, whereas others don't. But you see, it's making headline news. People are talking about it and everything like that. And what's interesting to note also, that in the context of, of this, is that recent survey said that found... Oh, you got me up and running again, bro? Okay. Recent research that they have out there 
has said this, and this is, I find, really interesting, given the nature of our, cult, of our country, is this right here. One in three Americans, this part right here, one in three Americans see the conflict in Syria as part of the Bible's plan for end times. One in three. One in three Americans see the Bible, see this as being a part of end times. One in four think that a U.S. military strike would lead to Armageddon. Now that's kind of surprising to me. Is, it, is that surprising anybody? Or do you believe that? It surprises you? Why does it surprise you? Talk to me. Why does it surprise you? Anybody in this section surprised they want to talk about it? Okay, that's fine. Right here. Judy, talk to me. Why does it surprise you? I just think not enough of the biblical things that are supposed to happen before Armageddon have happened yet. So. But does it surprise you that people believe that way? Uh-huh. No, it doesn't surprise you? That's what you were going to say, too? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's why it surprised me, too, because I don't think that many people are reading their Bibles in America. <laughs> but they have these strong convictions about Armageddon, you know what I mean? That in itself should scare us to death, you know what I mean? Anybody else have a comment different than that? I think that's what kind of most of us are thinking, like, that that many people even know what Armageddon is, besides a movie title that was on, you know, a few years ago? Yeah, and so it's interesting stats, interesting facts, you know. So, um, but a lot of people are connecting dots. Now, I don't know what those dots look like once they've connected them and whether they're appropriate or not because people have been doing that for centuries. Matter of fact, even earlier this year, you know, in January, you know, the world was going to end then because the Mayans ran out of a calendar, right? You know, and then last year, a couple of times last year, and then a few times before that, we also had issues because Harold Camping said so, Right? <laughs> Okay, and they're not the only ones, you know, because then you just have other people who also have had these, these, these fountains of wisdom that have told them that the world's going to end then too, you know, and so this is not a new thing. Um, this was a very big deal 14 years ago, 13 years ago at the turn of the millennium, you know, isn't the end coming soon? Yeah, well, it was on the cover of all the magazines, you know, isn't the end coming soon? So all this stuff has the attention of the world and of, of people who claim to be godless or claim to have very little interest in God. Matter of fact, think of how many movies are out there. I mean, this year alone, how many movies have been made about the end of the world, you know. And in all that, sometimes they put in their theories and their themes about that and all. But, this, but today, what we want to look at is a little bit about this particular passage we're talking about in Isaiah. But we also... Um, want to uh, take a broader vision look at it, all right? So let's look at the passages that were referred to by um, Joel Rosenberg there. The very first one is from Isaiah 1, I mean Isaiah 17 rather. Isaiah 17, see Damascus will no longer be a city but will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aurora will be deserted and led to flocks which will lie down with not one of them, not, with not one to make them afraid. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim and royal power from Damascus. The remnant of Aram will be like the glory of the Israelites, declares the Lord Almighty. And then there's another um, accompanying passage in Jeremiah we're going to look at a moment ago. So here, many are saying that this passage, and I'm just going to touch on a couple of things real quick about this and all. Many, so this passage here says, Damascus will be no more. It won't be a city. Matter of fact, this, this, this pot right here, the cities will be deserted. That word right there can be translated as, to, as a, a play on, uh, on words, a play on speech, where it's talking about, the li- word literally means stripped. It means naked. It means nothing. 
And so it's kind of a play on words. It just says, there's going to be nothing there. And it says that the flocks will lie down, and there's going to be no one there to make them afraid. So in, in, in the play on speech, and then even this, this word picture that it paints, it's saying no one will be there. And so many scholars would say that this particular passage was fulfilled in 732, when Assyria attacked the city of Damascus and overtook it. Probably did a fair amount of destruction into it and everything like that. But the fact of the matter is, is that today the city still stands. Not only does it stand, but it is also the capital of the nation. So this prophecy, from this point, hasn't happened. But another fact also we can take into consideration, and Joel Rosenberg points this out as well, and it just says that um, in the timing of all this, in um, Isaiah, there's one part of it where it says, in 14, verse 28, it says, This prophecy came in the year King Ahaz died. Okay, so we know that Assyria attacked Damascus in 732. And this prophecy came in the year King Ahaz died, which was, and depending on your calendars and how you look and all, which was in a time frame of between 710 and 715. Now, remember, time's going backwards here. So 710 or 715 is anywhere from 15 to 20 years after Assyria attacked Damascus. So the prophecy was made about Syria being destroyed, Damascus being destroyed, 15 to 20 years after Syria attacked it. So it would be hard to conclude that that, past, that, that prophecy was fulfilled in 732 since this prophecy was made after the fact. And so that's what's gotten many people's attention. Well, here's Damascus. It's in serious trouble. Syria as a nation is in serious trouble. Is this passage referring to that? And if it is, and you begin to look at the bigger scope of prophecy, and you begin to look and say, well, you know, how do the dominoes begin to fall? If this happens, what's the next one to happen? If that happens, what's the next one to happen? Where is this going to lead if this is true? And that's what got people's attention. That's why people are talking about it. There's a corresponding verse in Jeremiah 49 that also speaks of some of the same thing. Damascus, and well, let me read the whole passage. That's just an excerpt up there. Concerning Damascus, Jeremiah 49, 23. Hamath and Arpad are dismayed, for they have heard bad news. They are disheartened, troubled like the restless sea. Damascus has become feeble. She has turned to flee, and panic has gripped her. Anguish and pain has seized her, pain like that of a woman in labor. Why has the city of renown not been abandoned? Uh, why, has this, why has the city of renown not been abandoned? The town in which I delight. Surely her young men will fall in the streets, and her soldiers will be silenced in that day, declares the Lord Almighty. I will set fire to the walls of Damascus and will consume the fortresses of Ben Hadad. So there's another passage that's talking about the same type of destruction to the city of Damascus. I mean, another passage talking about the same kind of destruction to Syria and Damascus in general. And the reason why other, another reason why people are paying attention to that is talking about fleeing, fleeing. Well, the facts, you know, and granted numbers are numbers, and many people would probably dispute them and have different things to say about them. But the facts about Damascus and Syria right now is that of a population of 22.5 million, that 7 million are refugees scattered. Another 5 million have been displaced within their own country. In other words, their home has been destroyed or they felt like they were in danger, so they went to another part of the country. And over or about 100,000 are dead. 
And so that's why people say, well, this thing about fleeing, that's happening. Look, half the population nearly is fleeing. They're going someplace. They're moving around. So is this talking about that? Well, you know, there is a lot of discussion about the end right now. And does this passage, do these events fit this passage? And if it does, what does it mean? And so in the context of the clock for end times, in the context of the dominoes that fall one after the other in order, this has to happen before that has to happen. And all of those things there, people are paying attention. Well, and they're asking the question, does this mean something? Is it leading to something? Well, Joel Rosenberg, in that interview, he'll go on to say, we don't know. As a matter of fact, we know for a fact that Christ even led us, he, Christ even said, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, Matthew 24, 36. And so he says that, and yet you can, you know, just click on end times books and you'll find a plethora, that means a lot, a lot of books that are written about this is when he's coming back. This is why he's coming back. This is what you ought to look like, look at. You know, when I was a kid, that means when he was a kid and when he was a kid, and there's a few others, you know, the book was, Harold, you know, Harold Lindsay, right? Um, and all the, the title just escaped me. Talk to me. Like Great Planet Earth. And he says, well, when you read this in the Bible, you, that, that's our modern-day helicopters. And when you read this in the Bible, that was that country. And when you read this in the Bible, and he's not just, you know, he's connecting dots pretty heavily. And as a, and as a, a ninth grader in school, I'm reading that and going, whoa, man, this is scary. You know, because he's making some pretty bold claims. So... But this is what Matthew says. So you have people who are making really bold claims, and they're saying it with a fair degree of confidence. And you have other theologians who are saying, you know what? This is what Jesus said about that. So all of that stuff about prophecy is a distraction. Don't pay any attention to it. Stay on the mission. The mission is Jesus. Well, somewhere in between that, I think, is the right place to be. Not being so caught up in it that we're looking for dates and signs and every day we're checking the news and we're trying to say, well, that must be this or this must be that and this means that. And being consumed with looking at it that way, that's on this end. The other end says, you know what, it's not important. He'll come when he comes. And somewhere in between is this is why it's important. And this is how we can pay attention to it appropriately and rightly. And that's what we're going to just discuss briefly here in a few moments this morning. So, that's what, that's what Christ says about the time he's coming back. But, you know, the reason why prophecy is important is because 22, and it depends on, on what some things are prophetic and some, you know, people go, oh, that's not prophecy. So, about 20 to 30 percent of the Bible is prophetic in its nature. So, the Psalms... Um, the minor prophets, the major prophets, things Christ said. There's tons of scripture where he's saying, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. And so, you know, and if, and if we're talking, if that scripture is in there, if, if, if Isaiah writes and says this about Syria, if, if he says this about Damascus, if he says this about, about a reed that will not be broken, he's talking about Jesus. You know, if he says it, then it's important because all Scripture 
is given by inspiration of God. Second Timothy says that. So if it's in the Bible, it's important, all right? Now, what are we supposed to do with it? Well, here's what Peter says about it. He says this, Above all, you must understand that but no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, through hu- though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter is like going, when we read this, God is speaking to us through these men. And if God is speaking to us, that should be important enough to get our attention. That should be important enough for us to listen to it, to, 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 to see how it applies to our life. And so one of the things that we can say about Scripture is that he has a plan. I mean, about, about prophecy is that he has a plan. Prophecy reveals that. For instance, look at Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46 here says, Remember the former things, those of long ago? I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known from the end to the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey, and from far off land a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, I will bring about, and what I have planned, that I will do. That is a a powerhouse of a passage. He is saying, I will do what I said I was going to do. He's saying, if I made a promise, I'll keep it. If I said this is going to happen, it'll happen. He didn't give us the details. But he says it will happen. He's got a plan. He's faithful to that plan. And that plan, when he unfolds it like this, we begin to learn things about his character. We begin to learn things about who he is. And so, you know, it says a great deal that we often, what we often perceive as chaos. When we see what happens in Nigeria, like it's happening right now in northern Nigeria, where innocent, or this is true in so many nations, I'm just thinking about one that I read this week. In northern Nigeria, where churches are being bombed while they're in the church, and the doors are being blocked so they can't escape. When we read of the number of children that caught our president's attention this week who suffered in the gassings. When we read those things, we like go, it seems a little out of control, God. It seems like it's a little chaotic, God. God, it seems like there's no one in control. And we look at passages like this and so many others, and he says, I, I'm on top of this. He doesn't explain how always. He doesn't give us the details. But when we look at his character and we look what he has done and what he has fulfilled and we look at the places where we feel like we lack answers, well, let me just ask you this. If someone always comes through and does what they said they're going to do, The next time they say, I'm going to do this, do you doubt them? Do you wonder about them? 
Or do you say, you know what? I believe you're going to do that. You see, God's character is revealed in prophecy and in Scripture. And as we see him move and act, and then we see what looks like chaos, or it looks like open spaces, we're like going, what's going on? We look at who he was, we look at what he has done, and we say, the same God is still in control. The same God is still on top of this. Now then, as much as this looks out of control, as much as this looks like it's wrong, I believe by faith that he's still there and at work. I believe by faith that he is still there and he is at work. You remember just a few weeks ago we talked about faith. And there were two things about faith that we, t- we, that we focused on. And one is that faith believes in him that we have not seen. That's it boiled down. Faith is believing in him that we have not seen. And so in these episodes of what appears to be chaos, in these times of what just seems to be injustice, and it uh, um, it, it is injustice that goes without ever being checked, That challenges our faith. And it says, do I really believe that he is still in control? Do I really believe that he is still at work with promises that he has made and that he's still fulfilling them somehow in this moment? That challenges our faith. And it says, do I really believe that now? Do I really believe that in this episode, in this piece of news, in this event? It challenges us to say either it does or it doesn't. And in that moment when we say, I believe it does, we take these little baby steps of faith and just like go, I know it doesn't look like it, but I believe it's true. I know it doesn't look like it, but I believe it's true. And we tell him about it. We talk to him about it. We say, Lord, this doesn't look good. This doesn't look like you're in control. But by faith, I believe you are. And by faith, not only that, but I believe that this is true. I believe that you do have a purpose and that you are fulfilling it. And I believe that you are going to do exactly what you said you're going to do. And Lord, I don't understand how you're doing that right now, but by faith, I believe that. I believe you're on top of this and you're doing something. So, when we talk about if he's got a plan and is he working it out, one of those, one of those prophecies, one of those events that he talked about, that he made a promise to, was in... Um, was, had to do with his son. And so, for instance, there are 109 prophecies that spoke of Jesus. 109. Going all the way back to Genesis. Thousands of years. And he fulfilled them. Isaiah, Amos, as a matter of fact, so that's one way that we see that he fulfilled, uh, he fulfilled prophecies. Another one is out of Amos 9. Where, where it is written, I will bring my exiled people Israel back, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them, and they will plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they will make gardens and eat their fruit, and I will plant Israel in their own land, and never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Well, in 1948, 
if you're a prophecy buff, 1948 was a huge year because that was the year all of a sudden they're back. They're back. What does that mean? If this is like dominoes and if you flick over one and they begin to fall, what does that mean to prophecy? What does that mean to this? God kept his promise for one thing. That's what it meant. And so if we're trying to connect the next domino, I think we've got the focus wrong. It's not that we're looking for the next thing to happen. It's not that we're waiting to see what he's going to do next. It's that, you know what? The one who made a promise kept it. The one who said he was going to do something, he did it. And it took thousands of years for him to do it in his own time frame, in his own way, in ways that we would not have thought possible. He did it. And so instead of us looking for the next detail, for the next domino that's going to fall over, for the next world cataclysmic event that's going to happen, it's not so much about the events. It's about that a promise-keeping God continued to keep his promises. And that for those who were alive in 1948, they saw it happen. They saw a promise come about and fulfill it and be fulfilled. And so when we talk about, on one end, those who are really consumed with the dates and the events and, and, spe- and putting specifics to them, and then when we talk on the, about the other end, those who say, well, you know what, all that stuff is a distraction. God himself said not to get taught up into it. And the middle is this. It's that, is this. I believe the right place to be, a place that's healthy anyway, is this. That, you know what, prophecy is important because it confirms our faith when we see it come about. Prophecy is important because he said it was important. Because he said it, it's important. Because it's in Scripture. Is it right and appropriate for us to kind of connect dates and events and people and names to things? No, I don't think so. Is it right for us to be watching an active and alive God dealing with mankind in the very moment? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that's this, this place that when you see, you know, Fox News and Mother Jones and everyone else on all sides of the spectrum, some who are deriding and mocking and others who are making claims that aren't true, somewhere in the middle, the fact of the matter is that we can say with great certainty is that God is active and God is keeping his promises and we might be watching, we might not, we don't know, but he's still there and he's doing something. We can say that with great confidence. We can say that with great certainty. Today, about what is happening or what isn't happening even. See, the the bottom line is just what we said. It's that God keeps his promises, and prophecy is just one small way of confirming that. He says, I will make Israel as a nation, and he does it, and he keeps his promises. He says, I'll make a place for you, and you'll return to it, and I will come in. You know, you read through... Proverbs, I mean, Psalms and all these places. And he talks about restoring justice. He talks about, like, taking the evil and giving them the punishment that they're due. You know, all of that stuff. And so he is so patient in his timing. He is so gracious and really even merciful because he gives us and people and nations time to repent and be different. All of those promises reveal all of that and more about God. We want evil to be punished and justice to be given out. 
That's part of prophecy. We want to, to know that he keeps his promises. And knowing that he has, and, and even just the few things we looked at today, and you could spend hours upon hours even studying it further, you begin to see he is a promise keeper. He is a covenant keeper. He is one who says he'll do what he says he'll do. His inbox is never out of balance. It's always empty. He's on top of things all the time. And so, like, and the, how do, what does that mean to us today? Well, this week, it meant a lot to some people in our church. It meant a lot to Don Harrington uh, Ribo, who had surgery for cancer this week, that she believed that God was looking out for her because he said he would. That's how the way that God deals with prophecy filters down into our personal lives. He gives hope when sometimes we don't know if we have any hope. He gives hope not in surgery sometimes, not in a doctor's skill, not in a check that's big enough to pay the rent. He, doesn't, he gives hope outside of those time frames. He gives hope in eternity. And so it's in that. So why does all this matter? Because a promise-keeping God who makes promises that span the centuries makes promises to your life that gives you hope today that gives you hope in your circumstance. It gives you hope in whatever it is that you're going through that you can't quite put your finger on, that you can't grasp, that you can't manage or control. That same covenant-keeping God who controls the nations, who manages them, who doesn't let anything get by him, knows about your life too. And so that's why, that's uh, this place where when you, you look at prophecy and it's like the, the macro, it's the biggest picture you can have. But then the same God that has all that under control and manages all that big picture stuff, he comes all the way down to the micro. All the way down into the micro to your life and your life and your life. And the way he is with the universe, he is with your life. I've got it under control. I can give you hope in this moment today because that's the kind of God I am, because that's who I am. That's the reason why I think prophecy does speak to us. That's the reason why I think that prophecy is important. We want to know what God says about days and events to come, not out of curiosity, but because it reveals God to us. Paul wrote in Romans 15, he says, Whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of Scripture, may have hope. All that stuff was written so we could have hope. It's not about writing books and putting names with places and events. It's about having hope. That justice will be checked. That the evil will be punished that the righteous will be exalted. And the one doing all that is the creator of the universe who's right on top of your little mundane life as well. There's great hope in that. Great hope in that. Let's pray. Father, uh, this morning, we bring to you an overwhelming list 
of events, of circumstances, of relationships, of bills unpaid, all this just stuff that we sometimes lose our hope in. Life circumstances that appear like they are totally out of, that no one's on on top of it. Lives that feel like they're in a tailspin. And yet you give us hope. You give us hope because we watch you turn the hearts of kings. You give us hope because we watch you move the nations. And that the God who's in control of the universe, who keeps the stars in check, is also on top of my life as well. And that in that hope, we should exercise our faith and say, though it doesn't look like it, though I can't say it, though I can't put my hands on it, that I can't say that I can see it, I believe that the one who is unseen is completely in control. You give us hope. This morning, may we embrace that hope. May we claim it for ourselves and for our circumstances and for our lives. And may we grow in our ability to claim you as being faithful to your promises, not only to the nations, but to my own life. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. One other thing I just want to mention to you is that um, in just a few weeks, on October 3rd through the 5th, Chosen People Ministries is sponsoring their conference in New York City and Manhattan at um, Calvary Baptist Church in central Manhattan. And there, they are going to be talking a lot about the future of Israel, prophecy, and, and exploring Scripture. They have some of the best names that you could ever want to throw at as scholars and speakers at this. And so if you're interested, I'm going. And if anyone wants to come along, let me know. So I'm booked. Don't send me alone, all right? I'd love to have you come along with me, all right? So it's October 3rd through 5th. If you're a guest with us today, they have some food waiting for you downstairs, and I would not pass it up if I were you. I can say that with great certainty. That's not hopeful. I can know that with a fact. And just go down the bottom of the stairs and go in the living room down there, and there'll be some folks to greet you. If you're a guest with us, we'd love to have you come by, all right? Thanks a lot. If the rest of you are there, don't go there if you're not a guest, all right? Yeah.